0: New York City, 1942 It was a day of mourning. Groups of police officers entered bars, bowling alleys, and amusement halls, searching out the forbidden machines. One by one, they shut them down. Images of clowns and daring space rangers, painted on glass and brightly lit from behind, suddenly went dim. The officers hauled the machines outside, small parts jingling in protest, and lined them up in alleyways and along curbsides. Curmudgeonly bar owners smoked on doorsteps, watching, bitter but too smart to protest, as the officers shouldered sledgehammers and waited for the order. There it came. The men brought down their hammers with the force of justice, the fervor that comes with ridding the world of sin, one swing at a time. Glass shattered, wood fragments and bits of metal scattered like shrapnel. From somewhere within the hearts of the machines, hidden coffers cracked open, and thousands of coins spilled into the gutters. Silver balls rolled every which way, as if fleeing the massacre. The shattered husks of pinball machines were left on the street sides to be picked up by garbagemen or hauled to dumps. And the crusade had only just begun. Who would stand up for the game of pinball? What hero would rise in pinball's time of need? My name is Jake Barton, welcome to Historium. This is episode number 48, The Pinball Wizard. The origins of pinball go as far back as the Roman Empire, where a game was played with ceramic balls being hit towards different holes in the earth. This game eventually transformed into something called ground billiards, which was the precursor to many other games we still play today, including croquet, bowling, pool, and golf. As ground billiard games became increasingly popular, many sought to bring the game indoors in order to play throughout the year. These indoor games were usually played in taverns and bars, and more resembled billiards and shuffleboard than pinball. However, in the 1700s, billiards tables were narrowed and propped up on one end, with small wooden pins balanced on the high ground. This game, which was very similar to pachinko, was called Bagatelle. And the wooden pins in the game were where pinball got its namesake. By the mid-19th century, a small metal rod encased in a spring called a plunger was used to launch the small, often ivory, balls into the field of play. The addition of the plunger to games like bagatelle is considered the birth of modern pinball. Around the turn of the century, pinball was spreading to amusement halls, bars, and gambling houses all throughout the United States. In the first half of the 20th century, many innovators improved pinball machines even further. Electricity soon allowed for bright lights to illuminate the field of play and attract new customers. Bells added an element of sound to the game. Bumpers and flippers and multiple levels brought layers of complexity, demanding strategy and showcasing player skill. But perhaps the most important feature that really popularized the game of pinball was the addition of a coin-operated system. Now, business owners didn't need machine attendants distributing and retrieving the shiny metal balls from patrons. The machine did everything, all by itself. Carnival workers, bar owners, and bowling alley managers realized that despite its price, the pinball machine would pay for itself in merely a few weeks. This profitability spread pinball even further, as demand for these self-contained money-making contraptions went through the roof. Several companies arose to meet the demand, shipping out innovative, colorful, and often IP-licensed machines far and wide. Pinball machines began popping up at every venue where people gathered. In 1920, the United States instituted prohibition, banning alcohol in an effort to curb American vice. Next on the list of moral ills to address was gambling. Many manufacturers of pinball games also made other machines like jukeboxes, cigarette dispensers, and slot machines. Because of this, there was a strong association between pinball and gambling. For one, both involved brightly lit, colorful machines that required a coin to operate. And many of the older pre-flipper pinball machines were much more of a game of chance, where players would tilt the machine as the shiny ball descended after its initial launch. Oftentimes they did this with a pelvic thrust. It had all the trappings of an immoral contraption. At best, pinball was viewed as merely a gateway drug for gambling, luring in unwitting children and depriving them of their hard-earned lunch money. As gambling laws became increasingly strict, many pinball manufacturers sought to distance themselves from gambling. Machines stopped offering cash rewards for high-score jackpots, and instead would award free games and extra lives in the form of additional balls. Many newer games included skirts for the machines with bold lettering that spelled out for amusement only. Despite pinball creators' best efforts, lawmakers began closing in on the industry. Local bans on pinball machines began in the 1930s, but it wasn't until New York City Mayor LaGuardia took a stand against the machines that things got serious. Fiorello LaGuardia was elected as New York City's mayor in 1934. A charismatic leader who craved public affection, he achieved bold reforms in the sprawling metro. As an Italian, LaGuardia abhorred mobster stereotypes and sought to end organized crime in the city. Despite being a Republican, he was quite progressive, supporting Roosevelt's New Deal, publicly opposing prohibition, and advocating for the legalization of marijuana. But despite his progressive stances on some issues, he submitted to many of the public's puritanical demands of the day, shutting down burlesque shows and destroying slot machines, which he called one-armed bandits, with a vengeance. In 1942, he set his sights on another perceived moral corrupter, pinball. Just weeks after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Mayor LaGuardia gave the order. The massacre of pinball machines had begun. Over the next few weeks, police raided amusement halls, bowling alleys, and dive bars. They extracted each and every now-illicit pinball machine, and had them destroyed in the streets. Mayor LaGuardia himself joined the police in their raids, using a sledgehammer alongside the officers, and posing for photo-ops in front of piles of broken pinball machines. Many of the shattered remains were rounded up, loaded onto barges, and tossed into the New York Harbor. A large portion of the pinballs themselves were melted down into ammunition for the war effort. It's crazy to think that a bullet tearing through the chest of a Nazi soldier had been bouncing between bumpers in a pinball machine the year before. After New York banned pinball machines, hundreds of other cities followed suit, pinball manufacturers began dropping like flies, and the game itself had to go underground. Though still legal for private use, pinball machines could no longer be displayed in public, and instead were moved into back rooms and bars, behind curtains and pornography shops, and into the basement of amusement halls. This did little to help pinball's image. In fact, playing pinball slowly became a symbol of teenage angst and rebellion. The banning of this harmless game was seen as a vast overstep by the man, and anyone who still played pinball in the dark corner of an arcade was seen as somewhat of a deviant. If you watch many movies from the 60s and 70s, if a character is introduced playing pinball, chances are that character is some kind of social rebel. In the TV show Happy Days, the Fonz is often shown playing pinball. The Who's pinball wizard-themed rock opera album Tommy came out in 1972, using the game to portray the titular character as anti-authoritarian. Pinball was just as much a part of the American counterculture as rock and roll, comic books, and skateboarding. Still, by the mid 1970s, pinball companies were barely scraping by. New technologies like solid state electronics and digital displays made newer pinball machines more innovative than ever. But many of the newest generation couldn't appreciate pinball due to the ban in much of the country. Despite a myriad of cultural reforms sweeping the nation, strict laws against gambling and perceived gambling devices remained in place. In 1976, pinball manufacturers and enthusiasts decided it was time for action to be taken. Banded together as the Amusement and Music Operators Association, they began preparing a case for the legalization of pinball to be presented in front of a New York City council committee but they knew they would need a demonstration to seal the deal. To really drive home the idea that pinball was a game of skill and not a game of chance. They had the perfect man for the job. An advertising agent and magazine editor by the name of Roger Sharp. Sharp grew up in Chicago, where pinball had been illegal for as long as he could remember. But one day, on a trip visiting family, he came across a pinball machine. Mesmerized, He dropped in a coin, pulled back the plunger, and let the silver ball fly. From that magic moment on, Roger Sharp was hooked. His love of the game only grew with time. Soon, he purchased pinball machines of his own and began entering tournaments. By the 1970s, Sharp was one of the best pinball players in the world. He could be found playing pinball wherever it was legal, or oftentimes where it wasn't, smashing high scores around the country. The Amusement and Music Operators Association had their city council committee date and asked Roger Sharp to come on as a star witness. In April 1976, a Manhattan courtroom was being prepared for the hearing. Two pinball machines were hauled in, one placed on either side of the courtroom, one for the demonstration, the other as backup in case the first machine malfunctioned. Judgment Day was here. Slowly, the courtroom filled with committee members and the press, When the time came, the group walked into the courtroom in suits and ties, all except for Roger Sharp, who strode in wearing blue jeans and a blazer with a mustache that would make any Old West gunslinger proud. The fate of the game of pinball rested squarely on his shoulders. The committee meeting began in usual bureaucratic fashion, with announcements of what would be discussed and naming the committee members along with their titles. Of the six members of the committee, Only one had sponsored a bill to overturn the ban. The odds were stacked against the Amusement and Music Operators Association. And when they presented the evidence of their case, differentiating pinball machines from various gambling machines, the committee members didn't really react much. Eventually, Roger Sharp was called on to show the committee up close that pinball was far more than a mere game of chance. When Sharp approached the pinball machine, every committee member stood and gathered around him. Sharp was cool, calm, and collected. He had played on this machine for years, and was ready to showcase his skills. But before he pulled back the plunger, one of the committee members spoke up. He wanted Sharp to use the other machine, the one brought in as a backup. He claimed that this machine could have somehow been rigged. Despite the obvious question, how could one possibly rig a pinball machine, Roger Sharp obliged and walked across the room to the second machine with the entire committee in tow. Now the nerves kicked in. This was a machine he was far less familiar with. He pulled back the plunger and began the pinball game of his life. As Sharp played, surrounded by committee members, he calmly explained the different aspects of the contraption. Yet the committee members still seemed unimpressed. With the pro-pinball crowd looking anxiously on, Roger knew he had to try something bold. Like the New York legend of years before, who pointed his bat towards center field, Roger Sharp called his shot. He claimed the little silver ball would go right down the center lane in the middle of the field of play, right after his release. The committee members' eyes widened. They leaned in close. With the deft release of the plunger, and the fate of the entire pinball industry hanging on this single shot, the ball went… right where he claimed it would. The committee said that they had seen enough. They returned to their seats and announced their decision. Pinball was clearly a game of skill. The New York City ban was thereby overturned. The pro-pinball contingent was elated and immediately hailed Roger Sharp as the savior of the game. Over the next year, Sharp went on an anti-pinball ban tour, playing pinball for legislative committees and city councils across the country well into the 1980s. Wherever he played pinball bans were overturned soon after. Roger Sharp was dubbed the Babe Ruth of pinball, and was widely regarded as the best player in the country. Pinball machines began flooding into new markets, and an entire generation was reintroduced to an old American pastime. Of course, the renaissance didn't last long. Video games eventually won the war for young people's attention, and personal home consoles led to the end of the arcade hall's heyday. Eventually, video games experienced scandals of their own, as worried parents feared the depiction of violence in various video games would corrupt kids. The outrage over pinball machines robbing the youth of their hard-earned nickels, an actual quote from Mayor LaGuardia, was a recurring pattern in human history, parents simply not understanding their children's forms of entertainment. A tale as old as time. Despite bans on pinball being overturned in cities across the country, some places still outlaw the game. Strange rules like public pinball being illegal on Sundays or children not being allowed within 10 feet of any pinball machine are still on the books in several towns in the United States. Today, pinball has a small yet thriving community of devotees. Pinball conventions and expos are held across the country passionate hobbyists compete in national tournaments, and review machines online. But for most people nowadays, pinball machines are more likely to be viewed as brightly lit pop culture monoliths from a bygone era. Old pinball machines sit unused in dive bars and bowling alleys, occasionally showing up in a friend's basement. As the generation that adored pinball gets older, pinball machine owners often have a difficult time finding parts for broken machines let alone specialists who are even capable of doing the repairs. But there may be a lot to look forward to in pinball's future. Neon-lit arcade bars hoping to cash in on millennials' 80s nostalgia have been giving the younger generation a chance to experience pinball firsthand. Pinball emulators and phone apps have popularized the game for new audiences. So the next time you go to a dive bar, bowling alley, or full-fledged barcade, bring a few quarters in case there's a pinball machine. And if you find one, dust off the glass, drop in a coin, pull back the plunger, and let that little silver ball fly. Oh, and don't forget to thank Roger Sharp for saving pinball. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, with writing assistance by Thomas Harlander. Historium is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Pinball had a special place in my heart as a kid. For whatever reason, my group of friends always had their birthday parties or get-togethers at this old bowling alley. Now, you see, my hatred for bowling runs deep. So I would often go into the dark back room, which functioned basically as a tiny arcade with um, a Pac-Man machine... Mortal Kombat, an air hockey table, and three pinball machines. One was always broken, another was the Star Wars uh, Phantom Menace machine, and the last one was a Terminator Judgment Day pinball machine. Let's just say I spent a lot of friends' birthdays and get-togethers playing pinball. Here's my favorite fact that didn't make it into this episode. From 1955 to 1975, pinball machines made more money than the entire motion picture industry, one coin at a time, all despite being banned in many major cities. You can follow Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. To support my work here and allow me to do what I do, you can support me on Patreon. For five bucks a month, you can get access to my bonus episode feed. In the most recent bonus episode I did, I took a look at a particular scene from the movie 300 and explained why killing Persian messengers may have been the worst war crime Sparta ever committed. Head over to patreon.com slash historium to check out that bonus episode and support my work. I'll leave you with the sound of a machine I spent so much time with growing up, the Terminator 2 Judgment Day pinball machine in my hometown's bowling alley. As always, thanks for listening. Judgment Day. Direct hit.